listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 295. You're still not feeling good. No, it's just because we're doing this back to back. <laughs> you have to know to tell everybody that. <laughs> I hope I'm not still sick by the time this comes out. That'd be really, really disappointing. Yeah. And apologies, folks. We know we missed a week. Life just got in the way. and We're trying to catch up for this. I don't think we missed a week. I think everything went out on time. Okay. One came out last Friday. Okay. All right. Well, then we didn't miss a week. Then forget what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We got a new review. You want to read the review? Yeah, it's a five star. Very informative. Love the podcast. Been a listener since Paige came on board. Yay! You both do a great job explaining such complex industry in a way people outside of our industry can understand. Keep up the good work. I'm a national fuel broker, and I look forward to the episodes. Josh and Slow from the United <laughs> States. Thank you, Josh and Slow. is a good review. If you'd like to leave a review like Josh and Slow, just go to show notes. There's a link. No matter what device you're on, you can leave us a review. If you want to try to remember, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW for all guests this week. All right, so let's get into the news stories. First one up is USA to sell 26 million more barrels from Strategic Oil Reserve. I'm just going to cry. I know. Literally. So this is going to drop our reserve down to 345 million barrels. So scary. You want to guess how many days that runs our country? Well, last time you told me, was it 17, 18? It was 19. 19. Okay. So I was one off. Now it's 17. Now it's 17. down to 17 days of fuel for the country if something bad happens. That's so scary. Still no solid concrete plan on how we're going to refuel the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is a Strategic Petroleum Reserve, <laughs> not a political petroleum reserve. No kidding. Our current administration decided that 180 million barrels needed to be sold in the market to help prices at the pump, which it really didn't do much of anything. And with no concrete plans on how to fill it back up, it's scaring the old Marine and me to death. Mm -hmm. Congress is trying to step in. And when I say Congress, I mean both political sides to pass some legislation to get this happening. Unfortunately, there's no way this could get approved, much less signed into law. So this is just a huge risk to the U.S. ability to protect itself. It's also not good for the world and for the fact that if something really, really bad would happen, most of the world depends on the U.S. coming and trying to make things better. We don't always get it right, but we're the only country that will come in and try to stop bad stuff from happening, right? And if we can't fuel our own war machine, we're going to have to worry more if something bad happens about defending ourselves than going to help other people around the world. Right. Not to mention the fiscal implications this is going to have. And then, like I said previously, if you knew that we were running on empty, we're right on that red line where the E is, and you're another oil producer like OPEC or Russia, you know that you're not going to sell it to us for pennies on the dollar right. and capitalize on that. So it's just not a good situation based on bad politics. I will sleep so much better once whoever fixes this, fixes this. This needs to stop. Yeah. Yeah. The U.S. to receive 3 million barrels of Venezuelan crude oil in February. It's so cool. So we're basically Chevron's on track to ship 100,000 barrels a day of Venezuelan crude. If you don't know that crude, our refineries love it. They're like the little candies that you get in Valentine's Day and say, hug me. Mm -hmm. Our refineries want the Venezuelan crude, and the Venezuelan crude wants to come to our refineries. Very few refineries in the world can handle this heavy, complex crude. Our refineries love it and make wonderful output. 
Chevron's been exporting since it's got its license from the government to its Pascagoula for refinery in Mississippi, which I've been to many, many, many times. And then also they've sold some of the Phillips 66 and Valero. Now, even though Chevron right now is the only company that has approval to import crude from Venezuela, other companies are looking to do it, which I think is great. Awesome. We need to normalize relations with Venezuela. This money is going to, number one, help pay back the debt that Venezuela owes the U.S., but also going back to the people of Venezuela for food, medical supplies. This is just a win-win all the way around. So let's hope that the Department of Treasury, who's the one that's negotiating the debt recovery with Petrovesa and the U.S. Department of energy allows this to continue because it is good for everybody. Like I said, including our world's energy shortage we're in. The reason we're in energy shortage right now in the world is lack of refining capacity. And one of the best things you can do is feed the refinery, the crew that makes the refinery deliver the best output, which in this case in the U.S. is this heavy complex crew from Venezuela. So let's more of this, please. Yes, yes, for sure. Okay, next one. World needs 4.9 trillion oil and gas investments by 2030 to prevent shortfall, IEF. Yep. So you can read this. The short version is the world's, not all of the world, but a lot of the world's governments for a period of time try to push us into renewables too quickly, which caused the energy shortage we're in now, which means there wasn't money spent on exploration and production. You can't produce hydrocarbons unless you know where they are, unless you know you can get them out the ground environmentally responsibly and economically. So from now to 2030, it looks like almost $5 trillion of investments can need it to be able to fuel the world to make sure we don't stay in this energy shortage we're in right now. Now, with all that said, the industry's doing it. The industry's putting capital back into exploration and production, not just here in Europe, but all over the world. You're looking at the Middle East is increasing their exploration reduction budget up to $150 billion in capital over the next five years. It's looking to try to bring on 5 million more barrels a day of oil production to help ease this energy shortage the world's in. Same way, sorry, Ramco's doing the same thing. Exxon's out there beating the bushes, finding reservoirs all over the world. So as an industry, we're doing it. Now, people, listen to me. The one thing that can screw all this up is politics. Uh-huh. And regardless of what side you're on, there is no reason that a mother should have to decide on whether she should feed her children or have enough fuel in her car to go to work. Right. No matter what political side you're on. So let's get politics out of the way. Let the oil and gas industry do what it does best, which is fuel the world and take care of the environment. And this is just another example of what happens when there's a shortage of energy and the market reacts. In this case, the market's reacted to tune about $5 trillion of investment needed in order to get us out of this energy shortage. And we will do this if our politicians stay out of the way. Right. Okay. When will oil demand peak? This is really cool. So for a lot of my life, remember you had the scientist at Shell, Hubbard, in the late 50s, came up with a peak oil supply. Based upon the data he had at that time and others of his peers, they figured out that the world would run out of oil at some point. And they actually figured out that the world would run out of oil right around the late 80s and early 90s. Now, obviously, they were wrong. Right. Because the data they had now wasn't as much data as we have now. We know better, right? Now, the newest thing is when will demand peak? So when will the earth use as much oil as it ever uses? And then that next day, it uses a little bit less. If you listen to me for any length of time, one of the things I talk about in my predictions for this year is something called peak people, right? Right. If you look at our world's populations, the population growth is slowing in all the major areas of the world. There's states in the U.S. that if the trend doesn't change, there's going to be no people living in those states. You know, China had the one child by law policy for a very long time. Their population growth has slowed. The only population growth 
that is still basically consistent is in India, but the rest of the world is slowing down. And if you look at the trend, somewhere in the future, we will have less people on Earth one day than we did the day before. And that trend will probably continue as well. So I personally think that the peak demand for oil will happen right around the peak people, uh, which is not anywhere close. You look at these experts in this article, they're talking about peak oil demand in 2032, 2030, 2050. 2055, uh, BP Outlook is saying 2024, other people are saying 2035. I think all of them are wrong. <laughs> really? Sorry. Oh, yeah. I think peak oil demand, it will happen. Like I said, I think it'll happen with peak people, but it's not going to be this century. It's going to be the 2300s before that happens, maybe even the 2400s. So the world needs hydrocarbons and continue to need hydrocarbons to fuel modern lifestyle. And that is not going to change until our population actually starts to decline. All right. Adnock successfully delivers landmark LNG cargo from Middle East to Germany. Remember me talking for months and months and months about how if we don't change the way our political administration treats the oil and gas industry here in the U.S. that you can see business go outside the U.S.? Yep. Now, this is awesome. I love Adnock to death. This is great. They're living their first LNG cargo from the Middle East to Germany. Germany, and like the rest of Europe, is in an energy shortage. Winter is really bad right now. They need the gas to keep their people warm, mm -hmm. generate electricity. However, this really should be American LNG. But since we have a geopolitical show, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I'll let Jordan do that. If you haven't listened to the show, it's incredible. What's cool about this is, number one, this is the first LNG tanker that they've built specifically. It's also the first LNG tanker that's left from Abu Dhabi. It's also the first LNG tanker to deliver a LNG cargo to Germany. And so this is a huge milestone in the Middle East LNG business, which is just in its infancy. Once again, this is cutting off Russia's chokehold of natural gas to Europe, which, which they've had for a very long time. If we can export LNG, if the Middle East can export LNG, if other countries can export LNG and supply Europe with natural gas, the cool thing about it is we've now taken that market share away from Russia and it won't come back, which will keep Russia being able to fund its war machine. And the other thing is it spreads the risk. So the more countries that can deliver LNG to Europe, the more competition there is, the better prices Europe will get and the better efficiencies will come because of the competition. So this is a win-win all the way around. Hats off Adnock for pulling this off. Okay. Alaska condemns restrictions on Alaskan oil drilling project by Biden administration. I kind of felt this coming. Can I read a quote from Republican Lisa Murkowski? Sure. Go right ahead. They damn well better not kill this project. <laughs> That's the quote. <laughs> so it's really interesting. Of course, our federal government is trying to constrain this project. I talked about it earlier for, on the pipeline side of this project, not the drilling, but the pipeline, how they made some concessions, which I thought was really cool. Right. Then I come to this, right? Yeah. So basically, because of how severe the weather is there and how these are conventional reservoirs, in order to make this project viable, so in order for it to make a profit, they need three drilling pads, three drilling pads, not 300, not 30, three. The government wants to tell them they can only have two. It would make the project economically unviable, basically killing the project without the government saying they're killing the project. Now, the indigenous tribes are having a conniption fit because this is jobs for its people, really high-paying jobs. A bunch of Alaskan natives went back to Washington and basically said to their politicians, look, or not to their politicians, all politicians, look, we need these jobs. They're important, high-paying jobs. The world's in an energy shortage. Why would you sit down and kill this project in a way that makes it look like you're not trying to kill the project? And they got no answer, of course, from our current Yeah, and then, and of course, Dan, Senator Dan Sullivan says, we think it's being teed up to possibly be a ruse to go down to two pads. It would be an exercise of pure raw power, not science, and importantly, not listening to the people that live there. 
So let's hope this doesn't happen. Unfortunately, Paige. It, yep. I think mm-hmm. it will. Hope Probably. I'm wrong about that. I hope we're wrong too. So, okay. Next one is SpaceX sells former oil field rigs. You remember this when they bought a couple of semi-submersible rigs? Yeah, I thought it was cool. It's amazing. And they actually launched, not actually space travel, just trials. They actually launched several of their rockets from these rigs and landed them back on the rigs. Landed them back on the rigs. I remember watching. I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So they've taken these semi-submersible rigs back to Pascagoula, Mississippi, where we just talked about Chevron's refinery is, to do the conversion work. They really never did any of the work. And now they just put them back on work and they actually sold them. SpaceX official press release was, we bought them, we sold them. They were not the right platform. I don't think that's what happened. What do you think it is? There is a shortage of offshore rigs right now. Oh. SpaceX bought these two semi-submersible rigs at the lowest point in history for the day rates, right? So they got them for pennies on the dollar. Right. I think this is a pure economics play. I think they bought them for pennies on the dollar. They sold them for Lord knows how many millions of dollars. They do to be retrofitted and brought back to modern standards, but that's no big deal. Yeah. And I think whenever SpaceX is ready to do offshore launching and recovery of a spacecraft, they'll do something else. They'll either custom build something or buy another rig. I think this is pure finance. Honestly, it's what I would do if I was SpaceX. It's smart. It's what I would do personally as Mark LaCour. If I had two semi-submersible rigs in my parking lot, you better believe I'd be selling them right now. <laughs> right. Okay. U.S. Department of Energy wants to give geothermal pilots $74 million. I love geothermal. So does Joe Petir, the host of our Dr. Joe show. He is Dr. Joe, actually. Geothermal in the right place makes a ton of sense. The problem is the right place isn't everywhere. You look at a lot of the Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, they have tons and tons of high temperature geothermal. And if Joe was listening to me, he's going to correct me. (laughs) But in my head, there's basically two types of geothermal. There's low temperature geothermal, which you literally can get that out of any oil well. You drill a couple hundred feet in the ground, it's 50 or 100 degrees warmer than it is on the surface. And then there's high temperature. Water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees centigrade. You need somewhere north of that temperature-wise to boil water and turn it to steam to generate electricity from geothermal. That's the holy grail to generate electricity from geothermal. Most of the geothermal systems that we could do here in the U.S. because our geology is different, it's not going to be that high-temperature geothermal. It's going to be lower temperature. Now, the lower temperature is kind of cool. You can do things like heat chicken coops or heat swim pools with low-temperature geothermal for nothing. Heat greenhouses is great, and you can take old, non-productive oil wells and in the right circumstance, the right technology, convert them to low-temperature geothermal and do cool stuff with it. This is our government trying to put money into high-temperature geothermal, which the U.S. really doesn't have a lot of. And then there's actually a bunch of technical challenges. It's weird that you brought this article up because I was reading something totally different this morning, but it covers this area and the high temperature. When you get up to 500, 600 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what you want for high temperature geothermal and electrical generation, the rock starts turning plasticky. Really? So the drill bits have a hard time drilling through it because it clogs up the bits because that it's makes plastic sense. on top of how hot everything is. Right. So let's see where this goes. Now, this is the part of the Infrastructure Reduction Act, the IRA, and most of the money that's earmarked in the IRA, I'm not a fan of. I like this only to figure out if we can do high-temperature geothermal in the U.S. or not. Let's figure it out once and for all. If we can, I think it's a great addition to our energy mix. If we can't, let's figure out that we can't so in the future we don't waste money on stuff. But I actually think this is money well spent. And especially the lower-temperature geothermal, 
a lot of the process that you do in unconventionals, like the shell resources, you do the same way. They need to drill. They need to frack. They need to pressurize. They need to pump fluids. So it's using a lot of the same equipment and expertise that we use in unconventionals. So let's just see where this goes. Shell's board of directors sued over climate strategy in a first-of-its-kind lawsuit. So this environmental firm, Climate Earth, anytime you have Earth in the name of the title, and, and I love Mother Earth, don't get me wrong, there's a little suspect. They're a board member and a share. Well, they're a shareholder of Shell. And they have enough shares that they're on the board, right? Uh, now, not sure why Client Earth would want to be on the board of Shell except to cause trouble. Right. Yep. Makes sense to me. So they're That's alleging that 11 members of the Shell board are mismanaging climate risks, breaching company law by failing to implement an energy transition strategy that aligns with the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement. So they're personally suing them. So they're not suing Shell. They're suing the people. Now- what they didn't understand is they're suing Shell. Yeah. Shell's been sued once or twice before. Yeah, I think. So, number one, the board has to accept Climate Earth allegations before the suit can continue. And the board of Shell said in an official statement, we do not accept Climate Earth allegations. So, now Climate Earth can't sue the individual people of Shell unless they get the <laughs> board to agree. So, Climate Earth, and I think I've mentioned this to somebody else, before you spend all this time and money to buy Shell's shares of a company that you don't like, which is hypocritical, and so that you can get on the board, so that you create trouble for a company that's trying to keep the world supplied with energy during an energy crisis, maybe go to like Law 101 class or something and understand how that process is supposed to work. Because basically, this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> and imagine what that board meeting is going to be like when they get back together again and those board members that sued the other board members personally are sitting across the table. Awkward. Yeah, it's going to be very awkward. You know, good for you, Shell, for understanding the rules. <laughs> good for you, Client Earth, for not understanding the rules. Okay, so Pipeworks receives tribal recognition. So this is really cool. So Pipeworks sat down, had coffee with Chief Greg, ooh, I can't even pronounce it. I should be able to pronounce this French. The Lasaurus of the Frog Lake First Nation. And during that meeting, Chief Greg asked if they would give the people of Frog Lake a chance on the Pipework project, which the CEO, Chad Wagner, said, you know what? Hell yeah, we'll hire all your people, right? And how about we give you a percentage of the profit? And how about we make sure that you approve all the work that we're doing with Pipeworks, both in the way we impact the environment, the way we protect your sacred lands, and the way we work with your people. And so because of all that, Pipework Limited received a partner recognition from the Tribal Chiefs Employment and Training Service Association, boy, <laughs> T-C-E-T-S-A, speaking of big acronyms, uh -huh. for proving its commitment to creating true indigenous relationships. And so forget the indigenous relationship. This is just a company doing the right thing in the community that it's operating in. It's saying, hey, you have people here who need jobs. We'll give them jobs. If they need training, we'll give them training. It's your land. We respect that. We're leasing it. We'll make sure that we're environmentally responsible. We'll let you approve everything that's going on. We'll give you a piece of the action. Why don't we work together on this pipeline? Wonderful thing. The world needs more of this. Yeah. Getty 2023, inflation hampering petrochemical hiring efforts. I think you interviewed Jeanette Marks from Air Swift. I mean, yeah, so yeah. She's quoted here saying, inflation has driven up supply chain costs and diverted resources from recruitment and retention. The fact that economic disruption has set back digital transformation could also indirectly affect recruitment and technology such as collaborative engineering, blah, blah, blah. Basically, what's happening right now is the petrochemical or the downstream side of the industry can't hire enough people. 
And there's a bunch of reasons they can't hire enough people. One is there's not people to be hired. Number two is that workers can make better wages in other places, but because of inflation, the petrochemical industry doesn't have extra money to pay the higher wages. With you know those salaries are some of the worst affected. Forty four percent of the people that were surveyed saying that this disruption has reduced or delayed their recruitment and retention of talent. Forty one percent report that it's also impacted salaries and benefits. And so the downstream or petrochemical side, and I do know there's a difference between downstream petrochemical, but petrochemical is part of downstream, is having the worst ability to hire, retain, and recruit talent than any other part of the industry right now. Now, the bad thing about that is if you listen to me for any length of time, the main cause of the world's energy shortage is lack of refining capacity, which is what downstream is. Right. So if we can't refine enough and we don't have enough people, the outcome is not going to be good. Now, with all that said, I really think that hiring will get back to where it should be in a couple of years. I think we have about 18 months or two years of downstream struggling to get the right people in place. And then I think it will come back and, and I think we'll be okay. But between now and then, if you run a downstream company, man, keep your people close, keep them safe, pay them what you can. Yeah. Be open and honest with your communications with them. Because if you don't, they're going to go somewhere else and you're not going to be able to hire somebody to replace them. All right. U.S. renewable diesel production surpassed biodiesel production in November 2022. Okay, so let's start with the definitions of renewable diesel and biodiesel. Yes, please clarify. <laughs> renewable diesel is what you've heard made from French fry oil. It's not just French fry oil. It's all type of fats and oils and greases that uh -huh. aren't, aren't petroleum-based, right? Right. Um, there's a whole process you make renewable diesel. Biodiesel is that same stuff, but then you mix it with 20% with petroleum diesel. Are you following along? Yeah, I think so I got it. So we have diesel fuel, which is made from crude oil. We have renewable diesel, which is made from French fry oil. And we have biodiesel, which is the French fry oil with some of the petroleum diesel added to Who it. Who named all of these things? Who do you think? Our government. Oh, God. Specifically, the Environmental Protection Agency. Oh. Uh, now, the reason this all falls under the renewable fuel standards, which you know my view on that, it's a program that needs to disappear. It's not good for anybody. Saying that... Renewable diesel production surpassed biodiesel production in November of last year really means nothing because biodiesel contains renewable <laughs> diesel and petroleum diesel. Like, you can't make this stuff up. This is like a Saturday Night Live skit. None of which, and nowhere in this article do they talk about that you don't have the same amount of BTUs of energy. So especially over-the-road truckers, they hate this stuff, right? Because they don't get as many miles per gallon. Every mile per gallon you get from an over-road truck is important to your bottom line. Yeah. The other thing is, in the grand scheme of things, and please no hate mail from the companies out there that are making biodiesel or renewable diesel, the amount that they can make is is infantile. We're in a diesel shortage. I just came back. I did a 300-mile road trip just a couple of days ago, and most of the gas stations on I-10, diesel's going anywhere between 4 to $5 a gallon, where gasoline's going for 2 two fifty a gallon. That's how big a disparity oh, is wow. between diesel and gasoline. Yeah. Nobody cares, people. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's such a small amount that's being made. It's not as powerful as petroleum diesel. Whether it's renewable diesel or biodiesel, that is ridiculous. It's diesel made from French oil, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I love the idea. But it doesn't even add up to much of anything when you look at petroleum diesel, which is what the world needs, which is what we're short of right now. The good thing is our government's invested money in this, and they're tracking it. And we so we're all much better educated knowing that U.S. renewable diesel production surpassed biodiesel. 
Well, I'm glad we got through that. That was a whole lot. So Shell starts production at Vito in U.S. Gulf of Mexico. You remember when I interviewed Gretchen Watkins, the president yeah. of Shell U.S.? She talked about this project. It's a Vito project. This is awesome. This is Shell doing what it really does best, which is large, complex offshore projects. This is 100,000 barrels a day project. Remember, the U.S. burns about 20 million barrels a day, so 100,000 barrels a day is noteworthy. This is one project. What's cool about this is, if I remember what Gretchen told me, is they reduced the project budget and the timeline by 20 and 40% respectively. Oh, wow. Because what they basically did, instead of building this from scratch, they took other things and just copied it. So they didn't reinvent the wheel. And they just simplified and rescoped the original design, which also had a reduction of 80% in CO2 emissions over the lifetime of the facility. And I was wrong. And a cost reduction of more than 70%. So not 30%, but 70% cost reduction. They're taking this exact same project. They're going to replicate it. And this will be another project called the Whale Project, which will be 99% replication of the Vito hull at 80% of the Vito topside. This is just, like I said, Shell doing what it does best, bringing more Gulf of Mexico production online. Hats off to Shell for not only reducing the cost of this and not only getting online quicker because the world's an energy shortage, but reducing emissions at the same time, making a safer facility. This is awesome, Shell. Good deal. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Where are we with the rig count? So we're down one as of February 17th. The United States is at 760. Canada is at 248, down two. Internationally, we're up one at 901. Yeah, and not 901, but almost close, is advertising with us. You can get rates as low as $50 (laughs) per CPM. Go to OGGN.com forward slash pricing. So many ways you can work with us, and we're happy to discuss those with you. Our Energy Continuity Conference has been moved to September. If your business helps businesses stay afloat, if something bad happens, reach out. We'd love to have you come exhibit there and come talk. LinkedIn page, you know the drill, go join LinkedIn page, over 50,000 members and growing strong. If you want to sign up for my monthly Oil and Gas Events newsletter, the link is also in the show notes. We take all the Oil and Gas Events, plus usually specials and things that people don't know about sticking in your inbox once a month. We never spam you. And if you'd like myself or any of our experts to come to your event, do a live podcast, speak, let us know. And then finally, First Friday Q&A, you know the drill. If you want to ask a question, go to OGGN.com or OilandGasThisWeek.com. There's a place for you to ask the question. Remember, the goal is not to stump Paige and I, but to help educate the audiences. Ready to get out of here? Yeah, I'm feverish. Uh, Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.